This is mom's couch from her office, and I sit here quite a bit during the week usually. We talk about some stuff, so I'll sit on this couch, and uh, I really, really like this couch, and it's really comfortable. So uh, I know that, uh, you know, all of us have those items that are really comfortable items to us, items that aid us in our comfort. So furniture's one of those things for me, especially, and I'm sure it's, it's probably something for most of you. Um, but then I've got some other things. I've got the perfect pillow. Have you guys ever heard of these things? That, yeah, they're, they're incredible. And once you have a perfect pillow, it really is the perfect pillow, and you don't want anything else. So when Kristen and I travel, we always try to fit. These things are really heavy. Like, they're, they're just really heavy. And we always try to figure out how we can take these pillows with us, whether we're on a plane or whether we're driving or whatever. And it always adds extra weight, and it always adds extra space in our suitcase. But we usually try to bring, at least one of us brings it so that we can take turns sharing it when we're gone. Um, we really like those pillows. And then there's, there's a couple other things that I have. Uh, I have, I'm a, I'm a big Mac computer guy, so I love my MacBook. Um, there is no other computer to me except a Mac. And so this is a, this is a comfort item. I, I really like this, and after having it, I would never want to own anything but a Mac. And I find that when I don't have my Mac and I have to use a PC or something else, I'm way out of my comfort zone, man, because this, you know, this is my computer. This is what I really like. And then uh, the last thing would be a, another Mac thing, and this is my iPhone. And uh, I really like this phone a lot, a lot, a lot. My awesome wife let me buy this a long time ago, and we kind of compromised. I got a refurbished one, so it wasn't as expensive, but does the same stuff, and I love it. And now that I have it, I'm like, man, this is, you know, how can I not have this? I check my email, I get my iPod on this thing, I get the internet, I, everything's right on that iPhone. And so it's a comfort item. And I think that there are probably a lot of you out here that have comfort items as well. So. I'm just going to go around to people. I told Jim I was going to pick on him first. So I want Jim to tell me, Jim, what's something in your house that's a comfort item for you? Nintendo Wii. <laughs> I should have guessed. I should have guessed. Patrick, comfort item. I know you've got an opinion on this. <laughs> Tim Horton's coffee. Tim Horton's coffee. Ooh. Yeah, we all like coffee. We all like coffee. Let me get Jeff Miller. What, what's a comfort item? My oversized or chair. Oversized chair, yeah. See, I've got a leather chair at the house, too, and I, I really like that. And It's not angled with our TV right right now, so I can't sit in it as much, and I don't like that at all. Not, not, not at all. Let's see, somebody on this side of the room. Uh, Dave and Jim, you're just both sitting there grinning like, that's ah, not going to be me, it's going to be the other guy. So, Okay, Jim, comfort item. Work truck. Work truck. Work company truck? Always nice. Dave, come on, you got something. You got something that's a comfort item. A chair. Your chair. Chair. Guys are big on chairs. I'm really big on chairs, for sure. Um, you know, there's a point to all this, I promise. And uh, really what, what I want to do today is I want to look and explore how the American mindset of comfort has maybe affected our spiritual life in a positive or negative way. Is the Christian life God calls us as his followers to live the life that we are actually living? This is a hard question. It's a hard thing to ask. I find myself as I, as I was doing this and putting this together that this is a question I was having to ask myself over and over. As I think I just showed you, I love comfort. And I think we all do. And I think that especially as Americans, we're so blessed. We just, things that, that maybe even people that in America might not be considered rich, might not be considered to have a lot of money, we, we still have all this stuff. I mean, most people, have, most people have a bed. 
if you've got a house, you've got a bed, you've got some furniture, you've probably got a TV. That's another thing I forgot to tell you about. I've got satellite TV, and I stink and love that thing. It's awesome. When Kristen and I lived in Illinois, we were away from the Buckeye games, right? So the only way we could get the Buckeye games was to have a satellite TV and uh, order the game day package, and so we did that. And I kind of looked out and got all the NFL games, too, when we were doing it. So I loved that. And, you know, we've got all these things in America that we just take for granted. They're just comfortable. They make us comfortable. We like them. They make things easier on us. You know, we don't have to think that much. We just kind of do things. We know that stuff's going to be there. If we want a meal, we just go out to eat. I mean, things are so easy. And, you know, the question that I began to ask myself was, what if, if this comfort that we get from our American culture, if it really does get in the way of the life God has called us to, what would it look like if we put those things aside and really lived a life fully dedicated and committed to Christ to serve the world around us? What would that look like? So I want you to think about some things. Fast food, instant coffee, one-hour photo, credit cards, plastic surgery. We have been taught if we want something, we can get it right now. And we really can. Most Americans can. If we want something, we can get it right now. Honestly, one of the reasons our economy is in such a mess, and a lot of you guys know this, is because we had people that were willing to just give loans out to anybody and everybody that wanted stuff and that wanted it now. So even with things like homes and cars and big purchase items, as Americans, we're not required to really be that responsible with our money if we want to get something. We can go out. Anybody can get a loan. Some interests might be better than others, but any of us can do it. And uh, before we get any further into this, I think it's important to consider what the definition, according to Webster's, of being comfort or comfortable actually is. So let's look at this. There's four things, according to Webster's. The first, producing or affording physical comfort, support, or ease. Two, being in a state of physical or mental comfort, contented and undisturbed. Three, producing mental comfort or ease. Four, more than adequate or sufficient. I think that we could all agree that as Americans, we are really holding true to this definition. All the things I just shared with you are probably things that in one way or another you can relate with, and we all have our comforts. And so in America, we're not having a lot of problems with producing or affording physical comfort, support, or ease. Most of us, now some of us play the whole woe is me and oh, I've got all these, but really we're comfortable. We just are. We have no idea how blessed we are in America. And so we're all really comfortable in one way or another, so we're not having a problem with this. Let me give you some stats to back that up. Over 50% of meals families eat at home are takeout, fast food, or delivery. So the interesting thing about that is that's actually an improvement because about five years ago, less than like 30% of families actually ate at home so we're eating at home as a family, but we're doing it with takeout and stuff, you know, because it's easier. My, my goodness, my wife and I have a crazy schedule. She babysits two days a week. I work full time. There are plenty of nights when we just rather order a pizza or go down to Roosters and have some wings or whatever. You know, we all do that. And so we're eating together, but sometimes we don't want to take that effort to cook. Between 2000 to 2005, get this, frozen dinner sales rose 46%, 46%. We like to eat. But as many of you know, myself included, we do not like to exercise. So in 2007, there were 11.7 million cosmetic surgeries. Listen to this. That's a 457% increase since 1997. One out of every 20 households in America has 8,000 or more in credit card debt. 
spending is fun, but saving, not so much. And I think we can probably all connect with some of those as well. Now, the question is, I, I told you that one of the things we really want to examine with this is, okay, yeah, I mean, a lot of those things probably surprise some of you, but they probably don't surprise all of us. I mean, we know that traditionally Americans are kind of lazy and we've got easy ways that we can look good and we're not really concerned about that. And so not all this stuff probably surprises you, but again, the question is, even though not all of these things, and please understand, I don't think all of these things are bad. I, I, I really don't. I think they're, they're not all inherently evil or, or terrible things, but the question is, has it affected our faith and our view of the local church. Has it? Well, let me read you some other stats from George Barna and his media research group. They're a very highly respected research group, especially in Christian circles. They basically do a lot of different polls about the pulse of American Christianity. So let's look at some of this. In 2007, only 27% of regular church goers, which they define as somebody that attends at least two times monthly, claim to serve at their local community of faith on a regular basis. Only 18% of born-again Christians claim that more fully understanding and carrying out their faith is their first priority. Only 18%. Why? That's what God calls us to do. You can't be a Christian and think that our first priority in life should be anything other than building relationships and leading people to Christ, giving them the same hope and love through Jesus that we have found. But only 18% of claiming Christians say that that's the first priority to them. When looking for a new church, over 80% of born-again Christians cared more about how the church would meet their needs instead of how the church was meeting others' needs in the community and the world around it. Now, for a lot of us, honestly, that last one, the hardest one to swallow, by far. Let me share a story with you. Kristen and I were in Cincinnati last summer, as many of you know, and we were looking for churches because we thought unbeknownst to us, God had different plans, but we thought we would be going back to Cincinnati after we graduated, um, and I would be taking a job there, and so we were pretty sure that was going to happen, so we decided, hey, we're going to use the summer to look for different churches, you know, see what's out here, and, and you know what our first thinking was? It was, what is the church going to do for us? How do we like it? How do they do, they do the cool stuff that we want to see in church? That's what we did, and I think that's probably what a lot of us do, and you know, don't get me wrong, you've got to be in a church where you can get connected and you can get plugged in. But the connected and plug in part should most always be about how you can connect and plug in to reach other people outside of these four walls. And so many times in America, we do not do that, myself included. And this is not what God calls us to do as his followers. And we're going to dig into some scripture later and I'm going to show that to you. Um, these stats to me... As I, I mean, some of these stats, you know, I expected that I would be able to find some of this stuff. A lot of the stuff about, you know, America in general, I guess, none of that stuff really shocked me too much. The 457% increase in plastic surgery was kind of extreme. That one shocked me a little bit. But the, nothing else really did. But this, the, these stats about Christians, that's scary. That's scary. These, okay, and, and understand something. These aren't people on the outside looking in saying, if I was a Christian well, that would be my first priority. No, these are people that sit in pews every Sunday that are supposed to be involved and engaged with their local community of faith. And guys, we're, we're doing it wrong. We're thinking wrong about what the church's function is. We're thinking wrong about as Christians 
what that really means, what God has really called us to do with that. I want you to think of some people in Scripture. Noah. Think about this guy, okay? I want you, some of you have probably seen the Evan Almighty movie with Steve Carell. Cute movie, but really think about this. It's like some people look at that and say it's far-fetched. I really don't think it is. I really think that if, if somebody was to come and say there's a flood coming and God's told me to build this ark and he's given me dimensions and he's told me to make it, make it out of gopher wood and all these specific details, we would look and say, you are absolutely nuts. Like you are just crazy. Of course, maybe now that we know the story, we might take it a little more serious. But here's Noah, this guy that's just living life and God tells him to do something extreme. Do you think that was comfortable? Do you think, I mean, mo most scholars believe that while Noah and his family were building this, people were sitting there laughing at them, mocking them, saying this guy and his family are total idiots. They are nuts. What are they doing? It's not going to rain, and if it rains, it's certainly not going to flood the entire earth. They were wrong. But do you really think when Noah got that call from God that that was comfortable to live out? I imagine him wrestling with that for a long period of time. I don't think that if any of us, if we got a word from God like that, I don't think, honestly, most of us would not go out and do it the next day. We would not start that project. We would double check and recheck and a check again and check some more and probably go visit a psychologist. We would think that we had lost it. Now think of somebody else, Moses, okay? This, just think about this guy. He absolutely never stopped taking flack. He leads the Israelites out of slavery leads them out of Egypt, taking them to the promised land, and the guy took junk almost every single day that he was out there from these people. They complained. They didn't have food. God gives them manna. They want meat. They complained constantly about the way Moses felt like God was calling him to lead people. All they did was gripe and complain. Not comfortable. But God had called him to follow out a mission, and so he stayed on that course. Not comfortable. Daniel, okay, put, your, put yourself in the picture of Daniel. This guy, honestly, is going from a bad life or a normal life to a really good life. King's right-hand guy, and you guys probably all know the story. He was offered all this food, and he kind of turned that down and said, no, that's, that's not, my, it's not my diet. I've got a pastor friend right now in North Carolina. Him and his staff are actually doing the Daniel fast, and it's, uh, it's stretching him quite a bit. It's pretty much just fruit and vegetables. It's kind of intense, and uh, he's been to two conferences during this time, so he's got all these cool places to eat out, and he's got to order, like, salad and stuff, and he's getting pretty ticked. But uh, this is a guy who was in the king's palace. The king loves this guy because Daniel's interpreting all these dreams, and then it happens, and he gets thrown in a pit with lions because he wouldn't reject Christ, and he wouldn't stop praying and doing what God had asked him to do. Okay, being in a pit with lions, not comfortable. There's nothing comfortable about that for any of us. Some of you probably get freaked out when you walk at the zoo and there's a lion like kind of right down there. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable to be in a pit with that lion. Let's think about Paul. Okay, Paul's a guy that kills Christians, hates Jesus, okay, wants to do everything he can do to tear down the Christian faith. He turns his life around. God forgives him, restores him, and he says, I want you to go teach people about me. So what happens? Well, Paul did not back down from the truth. Paul told the truth, and he engaged the cultures that he was in in a really creative way. But a lot of the leaders in those cultures did not want to have anything to do with Paul at all. And so Paul was actually, towards the end 
of his time that, that we kind of see him through Scripture, he's under house arrest for two years. He can't leave. Now, it wasn't, most people don't think it was this thing where he was chained up in a house or anything. I mean, he had food and they took care of him, but he wasn't allowed to leave that little section of space. It'd be pretty hard for me not to leave my house for two years. That would be pretty rough. I don't care who's bringing me what. I don't care how many books of the Bible I'm writing. That gets boring real fast to see the same thing day after day. And they didn't have satellite TV and a Mac computer, so they were really bored. Um, what about Jesus? Not comfortable to do what he had to do. I mean, this is a guy that was really... I mean, I think we could talk about a lot of things Jesus went through here on earth. One of the things that he definitely went through was, I mean, the guys kicked out of places where he grew up, and they kick him out, and they tell him, get away, we don't want anything to do with you. And he goes to the religious leaders of the day, and they just can't stand him. Why? Because he was saying, hey, you're doing this the wrong way. You're way caught up on tradition and religion, and I came here to change that. We don't, you don't have to do all this stuff anymore. And he called them out on a lot of things. It was uncomfortable. The guy almost got run off of a cliff one day. He, he did not live this luxuriously comfortable life. He slept just on the ground wherever he could, a lot of times around the sea somewhere, cooking fish with his disciples. This guy did not live a glamorous life. And most importantly, I think any of us, are completely mistaken if we think that it was just really easy for Jesus to go what he went through to give up his life for us so that we could live. He died a terrible death. He was fully man, yet fully God. When he died, he felt it. It was not pretty. It was not glamorous. Most people are almost certain that when he was crucified... He was completely stripped naked of his clothes after his body is filleted with a whip. And the guy did nothing wrong. Not a comfortable life. God does not call us to live a comfortable life as Christians. But all these people in the Bible, I mean, I think that probably you guys, I mean, you guys read your scripture, you, you know the Bible stories. I think the list could go on of people in the Bible that had to do really uncomfortable things. But I want to put something in real-life perspective for you, okay? Because probably not a lot of us are going to be called to build an ark. Probably not a lot of us are going to get thrown in, in a pit with lions. Probably a lot of us aren't going to be under house arrest for two years where we can't go anywhere. And a lot of us aren't going to get crucified, okay? That's probably not going to happen. What about Mary and Joseph? Think of Mary and Joseph, okay? Mary's like... Most people believe she's between 14 and 17 years old when all this stuff goes down. Okay? Put yourself in their position. Let's read the story. Let's kind of recap and just read. You are all familiar with this. This is the way the Christmas story starts, okay? But let's read it. It's in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And we're going to have it up on the screen for you. Feel free to turn there as well. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, meaning sexually, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, something you need to understand about this is in, in this day and age, when you were betrothed to somebody, when you were engaged, you were married. I mean, you're, everything but the sexual act 
has pretty much occurred. You've built, you've, this, Joseph will have already committed to have a house for her, to provide for her. He will have done the footwork for a lot of this. And the only thing they haven't done yet as a married couple really is have sex. That, that's just the way it was. So when it says divorce, it means that literally. When you are already committed to that, if you break that off, it was seen as a divorce. Okay, so let's pick that back up in verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union or sexual relationships with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, let's look at both of these characters going on in this storyline, okay? Mary, she's young, 14, 17 years old. Again, that's what most people think. So she's young. And it wasn't untypical for somebody to get married at that age during this period of time. Do you think she was a little afraid, maybe? A little fearful? I would, I would guess so. And I think that probably, especially as a woman in that culture, she was very concerned about her future. You don't have a husband, you don't have much. You just don't. That's the way it was. There wasn't this independent woman thing where you go out and you get a job. and you, No, you're pretty much looked at as an old maid for the rest of your life in the community. And you're not going to be looked kindly upon. So I'm sure that one of the first things that popped up in her head was, oh my goodness, Joseph, what is he going to think? And oh my gosh, if he leaves me, I am in big trouble. And I think we all know that even when we get words from God, it, it's, not, we don't, it's, it's really easy of us in retrospect to say like, well, I just did it, man. God said go, so we went. I, we, Chris and I tell people that was center point. Like, it's true, we went, but there was a lot of wrestling with the issue to come back here and start a church from scratch. I promise you there was a lot of wrestling with that. And it's easy now to say, God's provided, he's going to continue to provide, things are great, we're doing what God wants us to do, but there will be hard times. There are always hard times. There are hard times in this church right now that a lot of us can relate to. So Mary, young, fearful, concerned about her future. Let's look at Joseph. Joseph's society required him to act and do something in this situation. Joseph really based on the society standards, did not have an option but to do something, to take some type of action because a girl shows up pregnant that you're engaged to and it's not your kid, you have to do something. That, that's what society said. And, and these are the options he had. He could leave or divorce her. That would, he knew, shame Mary for the rest of her life. He could enter a marriage union, but in that day and age... You know, now it's, we see these situations where maybe somebody gets pregnant and, you know, they get with somebody later and those two marry. In, in this day and age, that disgraces both people. For them to get married and it not be Joseph's biological child, that disgraced them both. They would both be looked at as outcasts for doing that if people found out this was not Joseph's baby. Next thing he could do is take her to court. That would mean almost certain death for Mary. She would be stoned. That's what, that's what that kind of sin called for in that society, was stoning right away. They didn't do that. They didn't have a jury, and they didn't have a... It was, okay, she did this. All right, she gets stoned. Take her out right now. 
town comes in, they stone her, she's dead. That, there wasn't an option. It's not a pretty picture. And so Joseph's looking at all of this, and he's thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, well, what would you be thinking? What the heck do I do? What the heck do I do? And then this angel shows up to him in the dream. And again, you know, it says Joseph got up the next morning and took care of it. Good for him. I wouldn't have. I mean, my goodness. It, that'd be hard for us to deal with today, even where the woman's probably not going to get stoned and you're probably not going to both be disgraced if you stay together and to leave. Well, people do that all the time. So not really a big deal for us today, but for them, this is a huge deal. And God's saying something, but he's like, seriously, God, what do I do? And Mary's like, okay, you said that, you know, this will be taken care of. So I guess, I guess Mary doesn't have a choice. The baby's inside of her. She doesn't have a choice. Joseph did. They stuck it out. God had a plan for his son to any of the earth, but the plan came with uncomfortable directions. And you know what? God expects no less from us today. Sometimes he is going to give us very uncomfortable directions for where we are supposed to go and what we are supposed to do. And people around us may say, this is crazy. The world may tell us, this is nuts, this will never work. You don't know what you're doing. It doesn't matter. God doesn't give us leeway on this, see, is what, I, is what I'm trying to communicate. He doesn't say, do it when it feels okay. Do it when it's okay in society standards. No. He says, do it and, and understand that when you commit to this, you didn't just commit to the Christian faith so you could have hope and peace. You committed to the Christian faith so that you could serve others and show them that same hope and peace that you have found. It's not a one-and-done process. Now, what I want to do here is I want to talk about the big picture. I want to talk about church triumphant. Let's talk about church triumphant. We have undergone major changes in the last few months. I think we all know this. Um, today's my dad's birthday, and he's not here. Kind of tough. Didn't see that coming. Not comfortable. We're getting ready to go into a two-service transition. The building's changing. You guys walked in today. You saw some stuff happening. Stage is different color. Walls are different color. There are some things being done here. And honestly, a lot of us probably aren't comfortable with everything. As we progress and grow as a church, change is inevitable. It just happens. But what we have to realize is that change is uncomfortable for almost all of us. Nobody likes to change. And, you know, some people are more progressive because they understand that change has to occur. It doesn't make it easier. It really doesn't. Change is hard for everybody. Changing the way that you do things personally or that your community of faith does things or the things that God calls you to do, it's not easy for us to change the way we've been doing things. Isaiah Kaiser this morning, kind of a funny story. He came in and he saw the couch on the stage. Okay, this kid does not like change. He does not like his atmosphere being rattled. And he came in and he was freaked out that this couch was on the stage. He was just genuinely like, what is the couch doing on the stage? I mean, this is a kid that lines up his gummy bear treats so that they're in the right order. His Spider-Man treats, I should say. True, Matt, he's got to have the right collars. And, yeah. So, but some of us, maybe, maybe we're not as extreme as Isaiah. I'm like that in some things, honestly. But uh, I think all of us can relate to that need to change but not knowing exactly how to do it 
What we have to understand is that serving is not always enjoyable, but it is essential. Serving is not always enjoyable, but it's essential. Let's read Matthew 2, 24 through 28. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Listen to this. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The same thing Jesus was called to do is the exact same thing today that we are called to do. Be last instead of first. Serve instead of get. It's not easy to swallow that, but that's what Jesus has called us to do. The second thing is that change is not always relished, but it's necessary. Let's talk about something. There, there's a ton of scriptures we could pull out of this, but I want to look at the big picture. Look at the way things transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Crazy change. Let me break some of that down for you if you're not connecting as well with that. Old Testament, sacrifices of your best animals. That was to atone for sins. Jesus comes. Don't have to do that anymore because he sacrificed his life. You know the whole thing that Jesus really faced with the Pharisees was them being stuck over here in the past and Jesus saying, you're missing the point, guys. Everything you've been talking about is different now because I'm here. The relationship needs to be there, but you guys are so hung up on the religion and the tradition that you're missing the point. I'm here. And so we see in the New Testament Jesus and the Pharisees constantly doing this with one another because things changed, because things absolutely changed. Even think about the methods I mean, when they worshipped in the Old Testament, it was very routine. It was very ritualistic. Not so in the New Testament. Jesus walked around and taught on hillsides why people ate. It totally changed. The whole landscape of the Christian faith changed. And even as the New Testament church starts in Acts, then we get off the hillside primarily and we go home to home. So it changes. And the Bible never says that this process was supposed to stop. Jesus' vision for the church was that it would always continue to grow, that it would always continue to expand, that it would always challenge the people around it. And through that, one important ingredient that we cannot ignore, loving others is not always easy, but is absolutely expected. No other option. It is expected. We, don't, we, we do not, there's no loophole in this stuff, guys, and especially with this one. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 7. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always preserves. Jesus' view of the church was not about a building. It wasn't about Bible teaching. It was about a community of people willing to uncomfortably live out and serve his message. If we uncomfortably live out, because the message is uncomfortable, guys, it is. Yes, it offers us 
peace and hope and love. And yet it gives us some of that here on earth because we know where we're going to go. We know who we placed our trust in. But that doesn't mean that everything's just going to glide right by and we're not going to be faced with challenges and we're not going to have to get out of our comfort zone in order to serve and reach others. Jesus' message was about serving the world. The question for all of us, myself included, has to shift, especially with the view of the local church, it has to shift from what can we get to what can we give. Don't go places and say, well, I don't like the way they're doing that. Well, that's not really my style. Okay, and maybe there's a certain point where it's so not your style. I I believe in diversity in the body of Christ. I don't believe Jesus has this vision for just one church and and it's supposed to be just one way because we don't see that in Scripture. But what it does mean is that when you're in a community of faith and you're committed to that, don't always come in here looking at what can I get? What does this place have to offer me? Say, God, what can I do to be used of you in this community? What can I do for others? Who has a need that's in this community? Who has a need that's outside of this community? That's what the question needs to be. Church Triumphant is in a transition. And during this transition, some of you are uncomfortable about what might be changing. The vision my father had for this church was to reach people. And that objective has not and will not ever change. Because the minute it does, we will all know it. Because this church will be going nowhere fast. That has never changed. All this stuff that's being done, even with the building, it's to reach people. It's so that people come in here and they, they feel engaged. They feel like they can get connected. And, you know, as the church, we're supposed to be about serving the world outside of us. So all this stuff being done... I hate to tell you guys this, it's not as much for you as it's for people that aren't here yet. Sorry. That's just the way it is. Jesus was way more concerned with how he connected and engaged the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the scum than he was how the Pharisees perceived him. True? You can't get around it. And so that doesn't mean that that we don't all do life together, but something something drew you here to church triumphant. Something was real, or you wouldn't be here. Something seemed authentic, or you wouldn't have stayed. And all this stuff that's making a lot of us uncomfortable is really just so that we learn to better engage the world that has never come through these doors yet. And they don't see the love that we have. And they don't see the peace and the hope that we have and that we can offer them through Jesus. They do not see that. We must accept the fact that an authentic Christian life is in no way easy or comfortable. It is the absolute opposite of that most of the time. You know, Kristen and I yesterday, we got a cool opportunity to go to a Buckeye game. And, uh, you know, we had a good time. We took Aubrey, and it was a lot of fun. Our tickets were in the student section. And, uh, you know, for us, I mean, that was, you know, cool, whatever. I mean, they were loud and screaming, and we had a blast. But I got to tell you, it was like this the whole time. And if you've been to a Buckeye game, you know that you stand up almost the whole game. You don't really sit down. And uh, so, you know, we had, we had Aubrey, and I had her in this little Bajorn thing, and I'm trucking her up these steps because Kristen's back still kind of hurts and we're going up all these steps no elevators we parked and had to walk a couple blocks um, we, we get up there and, and it was while we were up there that I kind of realized something that we were doing connected with what I was talking about today that honestly uncomfortable I didn't care we were at a Buckeye game who cares we were at an Ohio State Buckeye football game Kristen never been obviously Aubrey hasn't we had a lot of fun but we stood up the whole game. My back hurt when we were done because I'm sitting there hauling my chunky kid around in this thing. 
We've got people spiking their drinks with all kinds of Jack Daniels and rum and all this stuff, and people just screaming and going crazy the whole game. I didn't care. We didn't care. We were at a Buckeye game. That's the way we should look at church. We have the best thing the world has to offer. The world can't offer anything like what we have inside of us. So it shouldn't matter that we're uncomfortable sometimes. We should look, and when we get a little bent out of shape, and when we get a little frustrated about what's going on, we should just throw our hands up and be like, man, but who cares? Look where I'm at. Look where God has brought me from. Look what still needs to be said to the people outside of these four walls. Who cares that it's uncomfortable sometimes? It's the Buckeye game. I want to uh, close in prayer. And, you know, I hope that this challenged you guys because it definitely challenged me putting it, putting it together. I, it's wrong of me as somebody that teaches if I don't question and challenge the very things that I'm teaching. And so I did a lot of self-reflection in this. And, you know, I told Kristen sometimes, I said, man, you know, I think that, like, even we just get too complacent. We get too comfortable sometimes with our faith. We, we look at things in the wrong way, and we don't really do it the way God called us to do it. And so maybe that's you, maybe it's not. But this church is going through change, and if you're growing in your faith, you're going to always go through change too. So understand that change is inevitable and that it's going to happen. But realize that if we are uncomfortable at times with where our community of faith is at, with where we are at, that probably means we're following God's will for our life. If there's no discomfort and nothing kind of crazy and out there that God's asking us to do, we're probably missing the mark. We're probably not doing everything he's called us and asked us to do. Okay, so let's stand up. I'm going to have the leaders come up and... I'm just going to pray over you guys. And if something that I communicated today touched you, if you, if you need to get prayer, these people are going to be up here to pray with you. If not, music's going to play, lights are going to come on, you're dismissed. There's no fellowship today, right? No fellowship due to the renovations. But please, examine your heart. Ask yourself, are you really living the life that God wants you to live? So let's pray. I really thank you guys. I thank Aaron for the opportunity to, uh, to speak today. And I hope that it really connected and engaged with you guys. Let's just close in prayer. Dear Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity. And I thank you for this church, the church that has, that has raised me, the church that has taught me. And, and God, I just thank you for every person in here today. Maybe some of them are already connected and involved here and, and know you and are serving you. Maybe others don't, but they're curious and they're intrigued. God, I hope that as Christians and as a church, we would be a light in a dark place, that we would be a city on a hill, that we would be the Christians that serve without question. God, make that us. Make that church triumphant. Make us uncomfortable knowing that being uncomfortable usually means we're following your plans for our lives. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you as we all go our separate ways. Bless them with safe travel. And I thank you for bringing them all here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.